Well, it has been a good day already, correct? Yeah. Um, and I know you're kind of looking at the time thinking, man, it's already 9.45 and Gary's still going to preach. Today will be short. Um, just remember to, to God, a day is like a thousand years. And <laughs> so in the grand scheme of things, just, just a little bit. Um, but hey, we're, we're starting back into the gospel of Mark. And if you'll remember back in January, we started a series of sermons. We called a sermon trilogy. So three separate sermons from the Gospel of Mark. And I told you last week we were going to start this series right here. This Nope, go back, go back. Nope, go back. back. There we go. We're going to start this series right here this week. And so here, here's my basic assumption. Most people in here went home last week, read through the entire Gospel of Mark in preparation, and then binge-watched all of the sermons from the previous two series to be ready for today. So raise your hand if that does not describe you. All right, so, so online, no one's hand went up really, all right? Most people have done that. They're prepared, ready to go. But no, um, I didn't want to jump into this next section before we kind of went back because my assumption really was that most of you have slept since then and might not really remember because as I was kind of reviewing and going back through my notes from the first series, there were some things I didn't remember and I taught it. So I, I thought, you know, it might be good to hit rewind and go back and just kind of cover and do a recap to start off this series. And so the Gospel of Mark is broken down really into three sections, and each section kind of has a key pivotal moment where God speaks to the identity of Jesus. So in the first section, chapters 1 through 8, um, verse 33, is the baptism of Jesus. Going to the next section, um, 8, 22, and, and you'll notice there's kind of an overlap here, and I'll explain that a little bit later the transfiguration where God speaks to the identity of Jesus. And that third section that we're starting in with this King Jesus series centers around the cross, and it's the last um, several chapters, 11 through 16, of Mark's gospel. And so the very first series in this trilogy was a series called New, and it dealt with one really specific question, because there's a question that we're using to kind of drive each one of these series. And the question was this, who is Jesus. Really, the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel really dive into and force us to answer this question. And they force us to answer, and I say they force us to answer this question because what Jesus claims about himself and what Mark claims about himself requires a response from us. Now, you can hear this question, you can hear the claims of Jesus, and you can say, I don't care, I don't believe it, I don't want to follow. Or you can say, and we'll find out in a few minutes as Peter does, that I believe Jesus is Messiah. And the reason I say it forces you to answer that question is because if that is true, and if Jesus is really king of the world, it requires an answer from us. And like I said, it can be, I don't want any part of it, or it can be, I'm going to follow. But it requires an answer. And right from the start, 
Mark starts answering this question. In the very first verse of chapter 1, he says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So right off the bat, Mark tells you, I'm going to tell you throughout this series who I believe Jesus is as Messiah. And then just a little bit later in verse 15, Jesus says this about himself, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And this word good news keeps showing up early in this text, describing what Jesus is doing. Because Jesus comes on the scene and he says, hey, I have an announcement to make. I have some good news. And the word for good news is euangelion, and it means gospel, good news, or good tidings. It is this announcement. But then the question is, okay, well, what is the announcement that Jesus is making? What is this good news really about? And it's really about this, a new king, a new kingdom, and a new order. And he doesn't really tell you how we're going to get there. He just tells you that my euangelion, my gospel, my good news is this. Now, if you live in Rome as a Jew, to hear the promise, the hope of a new king and a new kingdom and a new order is incredibly hopeful. The, the hope that Caesar will not always be Lord, that you will not always live in oppression, is an incredibly, incredibly incredible piece of good news. All right? But if you're in a place of power, if you're Caesar, if you're sitting on the throne, if you're in a place of power because Caesar is on the throne. And your life is good because Caesar is on the throne. Then a new kingdom and a new king and a new order is incredibly troubling. Because this message, this good news that Jesus Messiah is now king has some monumental consequences. And he starts out with this message from John saying, hey, I want you to listen. The one that's been talked about through the ages, the Messiah that we've been waiting for, the hope of the world, he has come. He's right here. And John baptizes him. And it says, when he's baptized, that heaven is ripped open and the Spirit of God descends like a dove. And then this voice comes from heaven and says this, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So right from the start of Mark's gospel, Mark has told you who he believes Jesus is. Jesus has told you who he believes he is. And God the Father has spoken over Jesus, his identity as well. Three voices all declaring that this is the good news that you have been waiting for. And the hope of the world is found in this good news that Jesus is king over all creation. 
And so there are some stories in this first section right here as we talk about the baptism of Jesus, it kind of centers and anchors the story with God declaring who Jesus is. But throughout this first section, you have encounter after encounter with people. Because what I love about Mark's gospel, it seems like he takes every single person that he talks about, and it's almost as if he puts them on the witness stand. And he says, we want you to give testimony we want you to give an answer as to who this person Jesus is. What do you see with your eyes when you look at him? And Jesus is going around and he's healing people of impure spirits. He's helping lame people walk. He is helping mute people to speak and blind to hear. But he's also challenging and confronting the religious system of the day and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And there's all kinds of responses as to what they believe. One of the very first encounter is, is with a guy who is a leper. And if you know something about lepers in this culture, they were considered not just unclean, but untouchable. They were not to touch anyone to interact with anyone, because if they did, their uncleanness could be projected onto that person. It was that they were contagious. You could become unclean because of an interaction with them. I mean, can, can you imagine a world living as a person today where you were not able to touch anyone. I'll give you a second to think about a time that might have been true in your life. Yeah, you couldn't touch anyone, interact with anyone, and Jesus is asked to heal him. And he says, Jesus, if you are willing, he said, would you heal me? And Jesus said, I am willing. And his touch heals the man. But what's so powerful about this story is Jesus touches the man before he heals him. To be able to be clean, the order that it should work is Jesus should heal him so he doesn't have leprosy, so he can't... Good night. My microphone today is terrible. Um, so he cannot transmit that disease, which really wasn't contagious. But he doesn't. He touches him, speaks over him, and he is healed. And then the very next story that follows, Jesus is in Calpurnium. And there are so many people that have come to hear Jesus speak. Crowds have gathered. And these friends bring a man who's been paralyzed. And they rip a hole in the roof. They lower him down before Jesus. And the reason he's there is that Jesus could speak a word over him and he could be healed and he could walk. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he looks right at the man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, if you're that man, if you're the friends, you've brought this man to Jesus for one purpose, that he would heal him so that he could walk. And Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he forgives his sins. And the Pharisees, the teachers, get into this little huddle and they start talking amongst themselves and thinking, wait a minute, who, why is he forgiving someone's sins? Because there was a system for that. There's a system. And that system provided for their lifestyle. And to challenge that system challenged them. And so he forgives his sins Knowing what they're thinking, he looks at the man and says, just so you know that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, can forgive sins, get up, take your mat, and walk, and go home. And he does. And he's healed. And right from the beginning, Jesus starts challenging the religious organization, the religious system. He's forgiving sins. And he's hanging out with sinners. He's doing all the things you would not expect a Messiah to do. Because if, if Jesus, if God is going to come in the flesh and Messiah is going to come and be this king over all the world, then there is this expectation of what that means and how that should look. And it doesn't. As he hangs out with sinners as he spends time with people who most think don't deserve it. And he's healing and cleansing people, the lame, the mute, the blind, the impure. And we have that question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And story after story, people stand on the witness stand and they tell you, and just so you know, these are not all, hey, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is king. There are so many mixed responses. In chapter 2, verse 7, the, the teachers of the law, as he forgives the sins of the man, says he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Just a little bit later in that story, the response of everyone else, they're amazed and everyone praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Going on to the next story. His family, he's out of his mind. Going on, um, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by Beelzebub, by the power, or by the prince of demons. The Pharisees um, say he's driving out demons. Chapter 4, his disciples, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. In chapter 6, Many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? What this, what's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? And that question, who is Jesus, is not answered the way we would just assume in the perfect, pretty church answer. It's all across the board. And people are legitimately trying to figure this out. Who is Jesus? And he tells a few parables. A parable about the soil 
and the condition of it. And parables about seeds and how the kingdom of God is going to, to start really small and unbeknownst to anyone else, it's going to continue to grow in their midst and become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then comes this really, really powerful story. And if you'll remember back, we, we said this is kind of the hinge story in the gospel of Mark. It's really where it, it starts to turn. Because the entire first section is asking that question, who is Jesus? And no one's real sure yet. They're trying to figure it out. And then in chapter 8, verse 22, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes, right, not COVID-approved healing, okay, he put his hands on him. Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. And then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. And so you have this man who's not been able to see. Jesus takes him outside the village. And think about the amount of trust that requires He's following Jesus, and he cannot see where they're going. They're not sure who he is, and he takes him outside of the place that he's most comfortable. Because as a blind person, you would rely so much on your surroundings and knowing where you were. And Jesus takes him outside of that, and he has to trust that Jesus is going to take care of him wherever he leads him. And Jesus heals him. But it doesn't happen all at once. Like all the other miracles have happened. It happens in two stages. And it's almost as if Jesus or Mark, as he's writing the story, says, listen to how this is happening. We've been asking the question, who is Jesus? And this blind man comes in two stages as he starts to be able to see Jesus fully. The first time, he sees him partially. I see people. They're walking around. They look like trees. Jesus touches him again. And now he sees fully. And it's this really bookend that ends this first section and jumps us in to the second section. But all of these stories have been telling a bigger story about the day that God comes to earth. In the Jewish world, it was called the day of the Lord. And when that day comes, here's how you would know, and Isaiah says this in chapter 35, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the dear ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And if you've been in Mark's gospel, you've seen blind people's eyes open. And you've seen deaf people's ears unstopped. 
And you've heard and seen lame people leap like deer and mute people shout for joy. It's this everything in Mark's gospel is trying to help you and I answer that question, who is Jesus? And you have this blind man who sees partially and then can see fully. And it really is this transition piece to the second section of Mark's gospel. And it's really highlighted by the transfiguration. It's kind of the core of that part. But as I said, there's kind of bookends to Mark, chapter 8, 22 through chapter 10. And the first is that blind man at Bethsaida. And it ushers in this new section. And Peter is with Jesus and the other disciples. They're on the road to Caesarea Philippi. They're having this conversation. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, You are the Messiah. And this really started the second series of this trilogy called Messiah, where Peter answers the question, You are the Messiah. So what is the Messiah? The Messiah is the anointed one of God in the line of King David. He is the one they've been waiting for. They've been expecting to come to make it. And so the question we ask during this series is this, what are the implications of our confession that Jesus is Messiah? Remember in the first series, who is Jesus? And Peter answers that question for us just as Mark did, just as Jesus, just as God did and so many others that he's healed and helped. That Jesus is Messiah. And as we said, you have to answer that question. But then the bigger question is, if you answer that, we believe Jesus is Messiah, then it has some humongous implications. It means a whole lot more than just simply a confession that Jesus is Messiah. That it would change everything about us. And as they say, Jesus, we believe you're Messiah, understand, there are two different sets of expectations that we're working with. You have the disciples' expectation of what that king in the line of King David was supposed to look like. Because in their mind, it was a king that was going to march into the city, conquer, and sit on the throne in power. And everyone who was oppressed in this world would be lifted up because he was king. But Jesus had an entirely different expectation of what that entailed, of what the implications were really were. And I think he sums it up best in chapter 10 when he says this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus continues to tell these disciples, three times he tells them, I'm going to suffer and die, and then I'm going to be raised again. And they have no clue what it means. 
In fact, the very first time he tells them this is right after Peter has confessed, we believe you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and be killed and resurrected. And Peter stands up and begins to rebuke Jesus. Because this is never going to happen. This is what Peter said. This is never going to happen on my watch. Will not have. I will not let it happen. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter is trying to stand in the way of the kingdom of God coming in power. And the reason is because Peter and I think the other disciples could not imagine a king over all the world coming to die. But early on, as we turn that page into chapter 8, 22 and following, we see Jesus on this journey. Constantly, Jesus is going somewhere. He's on the way. And it never really tells us where. He's going somewhere. And as he's on the way, Jesus takes his disciples up on this mountaintop. And there, he's transfigured. And he shines white as the brightest white you could imagine. Peter, James, and John are sitting there watching this, and then the voice of God speaks again over Jesus' identity. The cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. And they are awestruck, and Jesus tells them not to tell anyone about what they've seen, but in verse 10, the disciples kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. So so they've confessed that Jesus is Messiah, and they're still really uncertain about what that actually looks like every day. What does that mean for us? And so you have these two sections, where the baptism of Jesus, God speaks His voice over the identity of Jesus, the transfiguration where Jesus' identity is spoken over again by God the Father. And here are these bookends. The first one was the blind man at Bethsaida. And then the second one is blind Bartimaeus. And it happens right here at the very end of chapter 10. And really kind of catapults us in to that next section. It says then, They came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting on the roadside. So they're right on this journey. There's a man sitting on the roadside as they're passing by. This man's begging. And when they heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David. Right? If if Messiah is in the line of King David... Messiah, King Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, stopped and, and said, call him. 
So they called the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he is calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came with Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. He's begging, he's wanting money, but he's wanting to see. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight, and he followed Jesus along the road. See, we knew Jesus was going somewhere, but we weren't really sure where it is that Jesus was going. Until in chapter 10, as he predicts his death a third time, he says this, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. So so this whole time, Jesus has been on this journey. He's been going somewhere and inviting these people to follow along with him and inviting you to follow as well. Where is he going? Where is he on the way to? Where is he going? Finally, they were on their way to Jerusalem. They were on their way to do the very thing that Jesus had been telling them he was going to do. And I would imagine the disciples are geared up and ready to go. Because for him to go into the city means there's going to be a fight. Never in a million years could you imagine of someone becoming king by laying down and dying. So if we're going to get there, it's going to cost us. And Jesus had told them that. There's going to be this incredible cost to follow me. And I think they were ready to pay it. They just didn't understand how they were going to pay it. And that leads us into this, this last part of the trilogy. King Jesus. And the whole section centers really around getting us to the cross. It was about the journey that Jesus was heading on to Jerusalem, not just to get to a city, but to get to the cross, to make it to that point. And so the question we're going to ask over the next several weeks is this, how does Jesus become king? Because it's not the way that everyone expected. And most likely, it's not the way you would expect. But this question has some profound implications. Because if you're going to follow King Jesus, you must understand how he becomes king. Because how he becomes king has some profound implications on what it means for you to follow in his footsteps. And throughout Mark's gospel, the first 10 chapters, he continues to answer that question, who is Jesus? And everything in all of creation answers that question for us. Jesus answers the question. Mark answers the question. God answers the question. Demons answer the question as they bow to Jesus. Death 
answers the question as it submits to Jesus' rule and reign. Disease cannot stand in his presence. Everything in all of creation answers that question that Jesus is Messiah and submits to his will. Except you and I. The only thing in all of creation that seems to struggle with submitting to the will and reign of King Jesus is you and I. Because within each of us, there is a desire to do things our way. And each and every day, we're faced with those same questions. And we saw a multitude of responses from people who were in these stories. And here's the deal. Every single day, you and I have a multitude of of responses as well. Because there are days when I wake up and I know Jesus is king and I am certain of it and I am on fire and my life is full of hope. And there are other days where I wake up and I see everything going on around me and I really start to question, God, where are you in this mess? And every single day, We must answer that question. Who is Jesus? And if we answer that Jesus is Messiah, that changes our world every single day. And we live within Mark's tension of trying to figure out who Jesus is and what does he want me to do today. Not just in our head, but with all of our heart. And I think it's Peter who probably makes one of the most profound statements in all of Mark's gospel. And he didn't intend for it to be there. But it is. As Jesus is up on a mountainside praying, his disciples go looking for him. And they find him. And Peter and the disciples say to Jesus, everyone, everyone is looking for you. See, what they meant were all these people that had seen what Jesus had done, they were looking for him. But the reason I say it's so profound is because there has never been a truer statement. Everyone is looking for him. Yet there's so many that don't even realize it. Father, today, as we go back through Mark's gospel in preparing us for these next chapters, Father, I pray that we would feel that tension that Mark leaves us with. Not just simply intellectually answering the question, who is Jesus? But the implications that come with that answer if we confess Jesus as Messiah. 
And so, Father, once again today, we fall before you, we confess you are king, and once again, we give you our stubborn, hard hearts. And Father, ask that you would recreate them, and that today you would make us more like you. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this together. Amen.